This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Pretty simple. Arctic temperatures, lots of snow falling on the south coast. School closures are happening in many areas. What are your thoughts on this? Should schools close for snow days? Your options are yes, close. No, it's a parenting nightmare. Or you know what? I really don't care. At Jody Vance, Jody with a Y, Vance on Twitter, at CKNW as well. Uh, you can also call in 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Don't the American people have a right to know what specifically was targeted without revealing methods and sources? Well, I don't think so, but we will tell you that probably it was going to be the embassy in Baghdad. Did they have but- large-scale attacks planned for other embassies and if those were planned, why can't we reveal that to the American people? Wouldn't that help well, your I can, case? I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies. I'm Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah, and that was U.S. President Donald Trump with Laura Ingram on the imminent threat posed to American embassies with regard to taking out one of the top generals uh, in the Iranian government. Uh, the Defense Secretary of the United States, uh, when held to account, sort of had his feet pressed to the fire a bit, um, was unable to confirm. Basically, he said he didn't see specific evidence that Soleimani was planning attacks on four U.S. embassies, as the president had claimed. It's very complex what is unfolding south of the border, and specifically in Washington, D.C. And that is where we take you now, as we can connect with our good friend and colleague, Reggie Cicchini, who is a Global News Radio on-air anchor and producer, reporter in Washington. Reggie, thanks for being here. Good morning. So can you kind of unpack for us um, how big of a deal it is that Donald Trump claims one thing and then his defense secretary uh, basically is pushed to the point where he has to say, yeah, no, I didn't see that. Well, I mean, look, this is something that the administration has kind of been struggling with for the last three years. The president says one thing, reality says another, and members of the administration are left to try to tie the two together and find something that they can, uh, you know, make both sides make sense. And we're kind of being tripped up on that right now, because remember when the president originally uh, carried out this assault, we were told that there was an imminent attack. Then when the secretary of state took the uh, podium in the press briefing room, he said, well, you know, imminent might not be right now but it might be planned in the future. Then the president says, well, imminent meant that there were four. And then uh, the defense secretary says, well, I don't have any information on that. There are still conflicting messages inside the administration, which is why it's difficult to actually tie down what is going on and what the thought process was. That said, you know, there was a, a former ambassador who was speaking that simply said that it would be almost impossible for the president and for the defense secretary to not have the exact same information. So somebody is not telling the truth. And, you know, it, it, it's, you know, kind of been left up to the public to try and figure out who it is that's not telling the truth. Which often riles up the Trump base, certainly, as they kind of just get the headlines off his Twitter page, whereas it is being consumed on a more broad spectrum um, by Americans at large. What is the sense in Washington, D.C., from the press gallery point of view of how this is kind of, it feels even from here in Vancouver, it feels like things have gone next level here uh, because obviously the Soleimani drone um, execution uh, then spins into raised tensions with Iran, uh, which leads to surface-to-air missiles and then a mistakenly shot down 
uh, passenger plane. I mean, it well, just it, th- those things seem to be connected. They do, and we're actually getting some, you know, additional levels to put on top of that because uh, our colleagues at NBC are reporting, or at least were reporting over the weekend, that the president authorized this uh, this killing or this death of uh, General Soleimani uh, seven months ago, meaning that the imminency of an attack uh, appears to be in question right now. So we've added that now on top wow. of what this attack, you know, has kind of led to and spiraled to, and the fact that you know we have the president within the last two hours simply tweeting imminent or not, the answer to both is a strong yes, because we should have taken him down. And we still have the press and we still have Democrats questioning, was this the proper way of going about this? Because, you know, we need to put this in fairness that it, you know, we can't put the blame on President Trump for uh, an aircraft being shot down by Iran. It's, 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 there are significant levels of complexity to what happened. But the simple fact is that the president is not making the situation any easier right. uh, by the fact that he's kind of piecing together little bits here and there and just simply trying to attach what he wants to attach and ignore what he wants to ignore. Which is not a new uh, process for the president. Uh, I like the way you, you stated that, though. There are many complexities at play here. And let's go back on to Iran and the people of Iran and how they are outraged by the quote-unquote mistake made by the leader there, uh, the admission over the weekend that indeed they the Iranian government did mistakenly shoot down uh, seven five two. Yeah, and I mean this this is just kind of adding to that level of complexity because you know within the last couple of months we had the people of Iran starting to rise up and fight back against the Iranian regime simply because of economic conditions that are partly uh, in place because of U.S. sanctions and the inability for the two uh, for Tehran and Washington to work with each other. Then in the last week we had Iranian people siding with the regime over the death of uh, General Soleimani, but now after the uh, you know this 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 shooting down of the Ukrainian airline, we now have had the people step back from supporting the regime and they're now back to supporting America uh, for saying that, you know, this is something that they can't tolerate anymore. And we actually saw a tweet within the last couple of hours or so that the main uh, kind of news anchor on Iranian state TV has actually stepped down from her position saying that, you know, she apologizes for having lied to the people for the last 13 years. So whether or not this is going to lead to some kind of bigger development, bigger rise up against the regime, you know, nobody's calling or nobody's saying regime change yet, but whether or not this has uh, the the longevity to kind of uh, put pressure on the Iranian government is going to be interesting to watch because we had the White House over the weekend supporting the people of Iran, saying that you know we we stand with you. When you know, within the last couple of weeks we had the United States standing against these protests in Iran. So this is a constantly changing situation, and uh, you know all it takes is one blink for things to change. But where things are going right now, uh, you know these protests appear to be in favor of, or at least the U.S. appears to be in favor of how these protests are actually going. Incredibly fluid situation. We're with Reggie Cicchini, our global news uh, reporter and producer in Washington, uh, D.C., and our bureau there. And Reggie, with regard to impeachment, because people did try and draw a line to the initial strike on Soleimani to Donald Trump's attempt to sort of shift the narrative from 
uh, articles of impeachment to, to anything else. Uh, where are we with regard to the impeachment process now? Has, has Nancy Pelosi made any move toward submitting those two articles? Well, we hear, or at least we are hearing, that this move likely is going to be made sometime in the next couple of days, and the very beginning process of impeachment probably going to start up, let's say, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday, if not into very, very early next week, where uh, Democrats are going to choose basically their managers who will kind of act as their uh, legal counsel inside the Senate. We're seeing that this this is likely going to be something that starts up in the next week. We saw the president send out a good number of tweets over the weekend and very early today because this has now become a top of mind for him again, understanding that this is coming up. Uh, I think the big battle that we're going to have to watch over the next few days is how the trial is going to unfold. Are we going to see witnesses? Are we going to see evidence be allowed to be introduced? And are we going to see the president and his administration try to invoke any kind of executive privilege to stop anyone else from coming to testify? These are going to be the big moments to pay attention to, say, within the next 72 hours. And that's why we have you on speed dial, Reggie. Thank you for this. Thank you. Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. And uh, boy, oh boy, the temperatures, we're seeing it. The weather conditions, the road conditions. You heard it in the traffic. You heard Gord talking about, you know, wind chills of minus 12, minus 10. It is minus five degrees in downtown Vancouver by the water. It, and that's without the wind chill. So this is significant. And Janet Brown, our senior reporter uh, for CKNW, just sent me an email that said, Highway 1 out in the valley is a gong show. And she said, guys, I just talked to a tow truck operator. He says, Highway 1 east of 248th is a gong show. It's a sheet of ice. He says there are vehicles littering the side of the highway and the median, and people are stranded in their vehicles until help can arrive. This tow truck driver says even semis with chains on the flat can't make it. So if you're looking to head out somewhere, rethink that. How urgent is your trip today by car? Maybe stay home if you can. Um, These temperatures do make us think about our most vulnerable members of society. And it's with that in mind that I wanted to connect today with uh, Sarah Blythe, who is the executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society. And she joins me on the line now. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm worried about uh, people uh, living in poverty on the downtown east side and, and maybe without shelter when the temperatures are as extreme as we're seeing right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, we are too. Uh, thankfully, we're open 24 hours for the next, you know, at least uh, three or four days here. Um, two two days before today, yeah. someone died in the alley, uh, you know, out in the cold snow i don't know we don't know if it was an overdose or what the 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 issue was but you know it's just such terrible conditions that you know if you're having an overdose there's no way a person will survive that or you know even um just sleeping in these type of temperatures yeah it's, it's hard to even go out there for five minutes for me i can't even barely stand it it's wet it's cold it's horrible it's just it's a disaster and uh and I and I've learned not to enjoy snow just based on that it's such a terrible time of year for people um, that are homeless and you, and that's who I work with mostly so it's really quite a sad situation. Um, to try and navigate. And I want to help you. And I, CKNW listeners want to help you too. What do you need? What can we bring to the Overdose Prevention Society on East Hastings Street? What's your address again? Is it 58? Yeah. So, yeah, we're at 58 East Hastings. Yeah. Mainly hot beverages, anything that you can just boil a kettle of water. We got some kettles here, um, coffee, hot apple cider, just anything to warm people up. Yeah. We're open 24 hours and, and you know, just even coming down and 
uh, with your happy faces and and just with a treat or something and and to say hello and or even blankets, uh, jackets, socks, anything to to escape the the horrible, Chills. awful, yeah. nasty uh, weather outside. And and uh, you know we're really happy to be open. Uh, 24 hours, it's, it's, it's great because, um, you know, folks that uh, are drug users end up going outside and they sometimes get locked out or they're not admitted to uh, other shelters. So um, it's really important that we're open at this time of year. It is. And you know what, uh, Sarah, I can tell you that after the last time you and I spoke, um, I had an opportunity, a little break in in my coverage here at CKNW. I found myself at home and got my son and I involved in just sort of clearing out the closets and getting rid of the things that didn't fit him anymore. He's a big 12 year old and he had a couple of winter (laughs) coats and we dropped them off there at the Overdose Prevention Society at 58 East Hastings Street. I took him with me. We took some Tim Hortons uh, hot chocolate in a big box and some Timbits, just as a little there you go. And when we brought the bags in and I said, you know, this is my boy, and we got some of his coats in there, uh, the gentleman that was helping us uh, get get the stuff into uh, the unit or in, into your space and mentioned the fact that there was some kids' gear, he said, you know what? Uh, and he used a specific woman's name, is here with her son, and he could really use that. I think he's about 10 or 11. And the look on my son's face of being able to offer up something that he clearly could no longer use that was going to make a difference in the life of one other person really changed him. So I'm urging everybody in in listening distance, if you have stuff that's just keeping... Um, space in your closet, get your kids involved in dropping that off at the Overdose Prevention Society at 58 East Tastings because it is a life changer. We, yeah, we were dro- it goes right to the people. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of times you donate, you know, you just get rid of a bunch of stuff and it goes to Value Village and then they resell it. Um, in these circumstances, just getting it right to the person who needs it is really important. And, and it's, it's a lot, it's really, a, it feels good because you're, you're being able to help people immediately. And yeah. And uh, they feel good, you know, when people bring donations down here, it's just sort of like a, a, a little bit of a, you know, people get happy, they get to pick what they want, um, yeah. and they feel good about, everybody likes to be able to look at clothing, and sometimes people don't get stuff for long periods of time. So, you know, and it shows people care about uh, people, and it get, that gives people a reason to to keep going, you know, when, when, they, when they think that everybody's given up on them and that they don't have even clean or dry clothes in the snow. It's just, it's really tough. So let's go really, over really some really of the tough. things you need. You need socks, right? Because can you imagine yeah, having socks. wet socks in freezing yeah. weather? Rain boots, probably. Rain boots. boots and socks, yeah. you know, just to keep the wetness out, off of the socks to begin with. Right, all sizes, and, yeah, all shapes. All sizes. All sizes, yeah. all shapes. Gotcha. Uh, you know, sleeping bags. Uh, hopefully people aren't sleeping outside, but, um, you know, when they are uh, sleeping in here, sleeping bags are always great. Um, jackets, rain jackets, anything to kind of keep the wetness off a person when they're out roaming around in the streets yeah. during the day. And just like everybody else, everything that everybody needs. Um, but hot beverages. Um, Could, would thermoses help? Kind of, would, would vessels? Thermoses, to- yeah. Drinking, you know, cups. Like yeah. the cups would help. Uh, just anything that you have extra. I mean, one year I looked around my house and I had, you know, like six blankets that I hadn't been using. I just sort of gathered them up and stuffed them away. I mean, just anything you need to do some winter type cleaning after Christmas and getting all your new things. Right. Everybody has too much stuff. So, yeah, it's always great to be able to give, um, you know, we're just a society that 
collects and gathers so many things, you know, it's it's best just to hand it along when you're not using it. Hey, and you know what, Sarah? Uh, We're talking with Sarah Blythe, who's the executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society. If you're thinking to yourself in your head, oh my gosh, I do have stuff at home. I could easily roll by and drop that off at 58 East Hastings Street. Uh, You should. But we just received a call, and Ben Dooley is madly typing this to me, our producer. Just had a call from Greg from Blanket, BC, and they're saying that they're willing to pick up any donations and deliver them to the Overdose Prevention Society. So go to blanketbc.org and let them know and and they will come and pick up the blankets from your house and take them down to Sarah at the Overdose Prevention Society. Well, that is just so nice. I wish I could just give them a hug. My well, virtual people can hug. also call me and I yeah. hate to put my number on the radio, but here it goes. 778-952-2015. You can call me if you got something to deliver and and uh, or just text me and and we'll get it to people right away. Sarah, we got We're going to rally the people. We're going to keep. Okay. We're going to keep yeah. putting it out there that blanketbc.org will pick up blankets from you and deliver them to the Overdose Prevention Society. Oh, I had one more question great. that's really sort of yeah. random, and sorry yeah, if I'm yeah, making yeah. it about me, but I have like yeah, yeah, three yeah. clean or IKEA foamy mattresses. Would, would, oh yeah, would those come in handy? Yeah. yeah, those would be great. Okay, those would be perfect. Those are yeah. coming your way. Coming your yep, way. Yep. We also know a lot of people that live in social housing that, you know, some of them, you know, get a new house. They they don't have proper bedding and things like that. So, um, you know, it's always nice to get bedding and and any kind of anything to do with making people's lives a little bit better. So we got to start thinking in terms of people who might find themselves with uh, all of a sudden having an affordable house or an SRO, a space to live, what would they need to put in there? So if we start thinking along those lines and we can deliver them to you at the Overdose Prevention Society. I love this. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Sarah. Thank you for all that you do on the front lines. Uh, Well, yeah, thank you so much. I'll tell everybody that that uh, what's going on and they'll be very excited. Be so prepared. Thank you so much. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah. We were talking to Mark Madriga prior to the break, our global meteorologist. And boy, we're talking about some crazy wind chill values, uh, very cold cold weather, even right down near the water in Metro Vancouver. Highly unusual for there to be a low of minus 12 at Vancouver International Airport. We're sitting at minus 4 without the wind chill right now in downtown Vancouver. The streets are covered in snow and ice, uh, not even slushy yet because it's just that cold. You know, it seems like whenever this white stuff hits the ground, some Metro Vancouver drivers forget how to drive. here are some calls actually we received on the buzz lines this morning about what people experienced on their roads and and trips they had uh, tips they had for other drivers. Have a listen. A warning to all drivers: the last hundred feet of the Maryhill bypass as it merges onto Westbound Highway, it's an ice rink. It is just it's ice and it's uphill. There's already three vehicles that got stuck and couldn't make it onto the highway, and that's at a merge point, so it's going to cause problems. Watch out for the last section of the Maryhill Bypass. Based on what I've seen out here in the Surrey area, it's just a sheet of ice on all the back roads. I think the biggest problem, though, keeping the schools open, getting parents out into vehicles that are not ready for the snow. There are way too many people out here without snow tires. There are way too many people out here driving in their sports cars, their Mustangs, their BMWs, they're just sliding everywhere. They can only do 10, 15 kilometers an hour. They've clogged up all the side roads, backed up from one stop sign to the other. It's just a mess, and it's a mess because people are out 
driving when they shouldn't be. If you don't have to go to work, don't. Tell your boss your car won't start. If you're not going to get fired over it, it's not worth going out if you don't have snow tires. But if you absolutely have to go out, keep your speeds down and leave a much further following distance in front of you. On a day like this, no one is going to get frustrated with you on the highways for being extra cautious. The last thing you want is to be standing out there in negative 10, negative 5 weather, changing insurance information with someone. You're not going to like that. It's not going to be pleasant. Try to avoid doing it. Yes. These are great pieces of advice. 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899, if you would like to add to the winter driving advice. But we're going to bring in an expert on the topic because we can make your commute less stressful just by simply discussing this with our next guest. He is Steve Wallace from Wallace Driving School. Hey, Steve. Hey, how are you on this snowy day? I'm very good. And I have to tell you, uh, I think you and I spoke about I'm going to say three months ago, and you gave some great advice that I put into use each and every time I get in my car. It has changed how I drive because you told me the number one most dangerous at-risk position a driver is in is when entering an intersection, right? Yes. Those are the two places, the head-on crash and the T-bone crash are the top fail crashes. And you told me always have cover. Yes. Can you, you explain that? You at least yeah. on one side. If you go through the intersection, you have someone on your left side, you will not take first hit on your driver door. So if you have blockers at the intersection, it works extremely well. Don't be first out. Just in case on a winter day like today, the person that's in the cross-traffic lane can't stop. You know what? And Steve, that is such a big piece because it, it really is no matter what the elements, but certainly it's ever more important when there is that added bit that we're driving on ice rinks right now. And the problem that people have is poor equipment. So if you don't have snow tires, stay home. Uh, those all-season tires will work if you have single digits below zero, but they will not work as soon as you get into the teens. They are useless. Hmm. So our advice has always been winter tires or summer tires. All seasons are equally poor in both situations. So how do you identify the tires that you're speaking about? Like where would, if because I don't know, I, I got tires on my car. I don't know what they are. You'll have a snowflake yes. or you'll have a mud symbol. And those tires are generally good in those conditions. But most professionals will go to a full winter tire. And the best thing you can do is to ask a tire guy what you should have. And what I do, and I've done it for many years, is anytime I'm buying tires, I'm a real strong believer in Toyos and Blizzaks. Uh, and they've worked well for me in the past. But I go to the owner of the tire shop and I say, where's your truck or where's your car? What's on I your vehicle? I walk out there and see what that guy's got on his car mm-hmm. or his truck. And that's what I buy. Interesting. The tire does really matter, as does the tire pressure, right? Yes. And a lot of times what people will do is in the old days, they would take their pressure down by about five degrees so that they would end up uh, uh, pressure, uh, pounds of pressure, I should say. So they would end up with more um, more rubber on the road. But that's not as important today. As far as the tires are concerned, they do an extremely good job of making winter tires. We're with Steve Wallace, the Wallace Driving School. Give us some tips now if people have to get where they're going and they're going to drive the car that they have and they're going to try and do so. What is the What, is, what are the top five maybe tips that, that be, can be kept in mind when uh, heading out in these conditions? Well, first of all, it's all about who you follow. If you can get a pro, follow a pro. 
particularly if it's a professional driver, you have other drivers out there who are tow truck drivers. You've got other people in the milieu that will know how to handle these conditions. Uh, if you find someone from Saskatchewan and a Manitoba license plate, follow them. Okay. <laughs> as far true. as the BC people are concerned, half of them shouldn't be on the road. If you don't have to drive on the road today, don't go. Don't go. Otherwise, make sure that you stay within the path, the tire path of the people ahead of you. Don't try to sort of make your own trail. The other thing is watch for the spaces. So stopping is really the problem here. The most common crash is being hit from behind. If you're in a lane that gives you an escape, whether to a parking area or to a median area or another area, the likelihood is you will avoid a crash today by steering, not braking. If you brake and stop and you happen to avoid the crash, what's to say the person behind you is going to do the same thing? So steering to avoid any kind of obstacle or any touchy situation is much preferred over simply slamming on your brakes and hoping. Now, if you do find yourself cruising along, let's say a highway, um, and the posted speed limit is 80 kilometers an hour, do you still reference that? That's a rhetorical question. You should drive for the elements. How slow should we be driving, Steve? Well, the speed limits are always set for ideal conditions. And what you want to do is you want to go a speed that you feel comfortable with. And as such, if you're going a little slower than what other people are going, put the four-way flashers on. Make yourself visible, very visible, so people are paying attention to you. And as such, you will set the tone then in the traffic pattern. Oh, that's such a great piece of advice, which is used very often in Ontario. I found that the hazard lights were a very important part of, of driving sort of as a community because you'd let people know if all of a sudden you were exponentially slower than what you had been doing, you were going to tell the people behind you, you're slower. Here, look at my lights. Let's... Well, they're probably the most effective but the least used safety device on a car. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we really appreciate you taking some time and giving us. Can you give us one more? What if I'm skidding? Am I steering into the skid or out of the skid? I'll tell you what, one thing about skidding, they used to say, oh, steer into the skid. Or they used to say, oh, do, I'm telling you now, you steer opposite to the hood movement. Opposite to the hood. When in it, the it, same proportion. Okay, Steve. So is if, it, your hood's, if you're skidding and your hood's moving to the right, you steer to the left right. in the same proportion. Don't panic. Crank it. Don't let the energy and, and, and the adrenaline possess you and oversteer right. to correct steer in that same proportion and you will have good luck in that situation. And is it when in doubt, both feet out, take your feet off the brake and the gas? In those situations, you would do that with rear wheel drive cars. Okay. With front wheel drive cars, equalize the wheel turn to the speed and that car will pull you right out of the skid. All right, Steve. Well, I really appreciate this. Yeah, yeah, you reference Mustangs and you reference other vehicles. Yeah. They're all rear-wheel drive. Anyone who's going to have trouble today is going to be in a rear-wheel drive passenger car. The front-wheel drives are tanks. People that know what they're doing, they'll simply let that car pull them around corners as opposed to lose the rear end. I remember my 82 Honda Accord hatchback got me through a lot of winter weather. Because of the yeah, front wheel front, drive. Front wheel yeah. drive, engine over the front wheels, lots of weight, you're in good shape. All right. Steve Wallace, thank you very much for this, sir. Anytime and have a good time uh, for the rest of the day. Get home safe, and uh, if you don't have to drive people, stay, stay home. home. 
Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah today. It is a chilly one. It is minus four degrees in downtown Vancouver, and that's without the wind chill. We were talking to Mark Madriga, our global news meteorologist, a bit earlier. He's talking about values in double digits, minus double digits. We're getting more snow. Things aren't going to dramatically warm up and get back to sort of seasonal, you know, chilly, rainy Vancouver winter weather until the weekend. So we are going to be dealing with some slick roads. It's an ice rink out there. I've been following along. Um, Janet Brown, our senior reporter here at CKNW, is joining us on the line. Janet, I've been very much following you on Twitter. You're like my eyes and ears out there when I am sitting in the control room. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jody. You're very welcome. It's just crazy out there right now. It is uh, described as a gong show, actually, on Highway Number 1 right now. You know, in, in Surrey and Langley, things seem to be settling down. You know, um, the plows are getting to those side roads finally. But uh, I was talking to a tow truck operator, Jordy Cowie. He has only had two hours sleep since the snow started falling last night. He cannot keep up. He says it's just a nightmare on Highway 1. Anything, Jody, from 232nd eastward in both directions. He says it's a virtual skating rink. He says even semis that are chained up and on the flat cannot make it. He says they are jackknifing. And passenger vehicles, you can imagine, Jody, just all the much worse. He says they're scattered in the median of the highway off to the shoulder of the highway waiting for help to arrive and here's the conversation i had with him about an hour ago we've been working all night from about three seconds to mount Lehman, and it is a sheet of ice not good at all have you seen any trucks out there sanding or pl- plowing or salting they're out there now they're the crews are out there working hard as well on the plow trucks right now trying to get the uh get a handle on it but it, it's so hard there's so many spun out trucks and spun out cars and cars and ditches that uh it's making it hard for the plow trucks to even get through the roadways because the, the highway is it's at a dead stop. So both sides of the highway, west and east, are just littered with vehicles in the ditch and in the median? East and west, and, and, and right now, uh, in westbound, um, tractor-trailer units are still having a hard time uh, driving on flat ground without chains. They're spinning out. Uh, we just watched a truck jackknife right in front of us uh, at 248th and everyone westbound about 10 minutes ago. Uh, and another truck beside him almost going to the ditch. It's still, the conditions are still very, very, very bad. We, um, you know, us in the tow trucks, we've been working hard all night to keep the highway open as best we could. But, you know, it, it, trying to keep a handle on it is very hard. And it is very, very, very dangerous not driving conditions right now. I mean, semis with chains aren't able to make it. Is that surprising to you to on the flat, too? Yeah, it, honestly, it's... Uh, I haven't seen ice like this on the freeway in years in this area. It's uh, it, it's it's horrible. Like the tractor trailers are struggling, uh, cars are struggling, pickups. Everybody's struggling to, to drive. It's, it's the, the road conditions are, are atrocious. Like it's 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 a it's very hard. It's making it harder for the, the uh, oil companies to keep up on it because of the uh, you know the traffic volume on the road and everyone's just stuck and can't go anywhere. So the plows can't can't uh, can't get by them. Wow. How are the plows making out if the semis aren't moving? The plows are doing okay, but, you know, the plows are so much weight in the back with the salt and the sand and their chains on. They're doing okay, but it's it, the highway, uh, Janet, I, I can tell you from experience, it, 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 if you don't have to drive, do not drive, especially on Highway 1. So where does it get really bad, Jordy? It gets really bad between 232nd and 248 and westbound, both ways. Abbotsford and Chilliwack, do you know what's going on out there? 
I don't. I only went to Mount Lehman. I worked. I worked uh, all night. Uh, Two thirty second to Mount Lehman corridor, and uh, it was extremely bad. Ex- extremely bad. So I can imagine the further east you go, I, I can't see anything any better. Wow. So you've never seen anything like it? Not in years. I haven't seen the ice like this on the highway in years. Wow. Why do you think that is? Just because of the cold temperatures, likely. Um. You know what? I. Uh, I really do believe the cold temperatures, the wind is a big factor of it, the snow. Um, it, it, there's so many contributing factors that make it what it is. It's unbelievable. Okay, anything else you'd like to tell commuters about it, Jordy? Only thing I'd like to tell every commuter out there is if you don't have to go anywhere, stay home. Stay home. Even us in the tow trucks, we're so busy. Every towing company is out there doing their best right now to try and help the stranded motorists, but there's so many stranded motorists that... You know, we're, we're, we're falling behind in what we're doing, and uh, people are waiting a long time for tow trucks. And, uh, you know, uh, I can speak on behalf of every towing company out there. We do apologize. We are doing the best we can to keep up. Wow. So people are stranded in their vehicles. Are they getting cold, running out of gas? Absolutely. People have been stranded in their vehicles. Uh, the RCMP, along with some of us in the tow trucks, we've been giving them rides to the next nearest off-ramp, whether it's important, or uh, to, the, to, to the white spot in Chevron at 232nd. But it's, um, it, it's, it's horrible, horrible, horrible driving conditions. Wow, Janet, that is something else to listen to. From, from a professional mm-hmm. like that, giving us the please stay home if you don't need to drive. Because we're rather cavalier here. We think, oh, you know, well, what's a little snow? We can do it. It's different today. I can hear it in his voice. Well, you know what's surprising to me, Jody? How come we had to find out about this from a tow truck operator? Mm. Why are the RCMP and police not putting out a warning to stay off the highway? I haven't heard from the Lower Mainland RCMP. I haven't heard from Langley RCMP or Abbotsford, which I find really unusual. Why not just put out a warning to say, hey, the road is really bad? Because, you know, when you set off from Surrey, south of the Portman, you know, it it looks like it's getting a little brighter. You know what? I got to make a run out to Chilliwack. You know, I got to do this. I got to do that. And away they go. Yeah. And then they run into this trouble. So why not, you know, get ahead of things and warn people? I've also reached out to Main Road Contracting. Yeah. Uh, that's the company responsible for keeping the roads clear. Um, they say their entire fleet and crews are fully engaged in responding to the road conditions. They ha- they say they have 100 employees plus mechanical support working 24-7. I asked how many plow trucks they have. They could not give me a number in terms of the plow trucks. But they say, you know, crews are out there sanding and salting as quickly as they can, but it's really challenging because of the volume of traffic on the highway. I mean, they're doing their best, but they really can't get around it when we've got spun out semis and vehicles sliding off every which way. So, you know, it's very difficult that way. So why not tell people to stay off Highway 1? That's what I don't get. Yeah. You know, um, why not... Why not tell the local media that this is happening out there? Because as I say, people get on the road and then they run into this and then it's too late. So it's good to hear from this tow truck operator, Jordy Cowie. And and also from what Jordy was saying, it made me think I need to replace the kit in my car. Sometimes I'll hop in my car and think, oh, you know what? I'm just, I'm going from point A to point B. I don't really need the big winter coat. I don't really need the toque and the gloves and the things. But you do, because if something happens to your vehicle, you need to be able to stay in place and stay warm until a tow truck can get to you. 
Jody, you make an excellent point. Stay in your vehicle. Do not get out of it. Yeah. You could get hit by vehicles spinning out. And you're right. You know, at this time of year, um, it's always good to have a bag of granola bars inside your vehicle, uh, a couple of blankets, not just one. And also the RCMP advising having a lighter mm. in case there's anything nearby that you can um, set on fire outside your vehicle to try and keep warm if necessary. So those things are important, as well as a first aid kit. That would be helpful as well. But you're right, you make an excellent point. Stay in place. Uh, hopefully you have some food in your vehicle. And it's also important to have water in your vehicle too. And and just wait for help to arrive. They will get to you people, but just wait. I realize people are running out of gas, but just stay in place and stay inside your vehicle because they will get to you as fast as possible. And kudos to our friend Jordy, who's out there helping to rescue so many people. Forgive my voice, Jody. I've got a bad cold. And you've been working hard all day <clears throat> long. Jenna Brown, thank you so much for this. My pleasure, Jody. Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. You may remember back in September, Justice Christine Badouin uh, ruled that the federal government's medically assisted dying law was too restrictive. Under the 2016 legislation that passed uh, by the Liberals for a person with uh, to be eligible for a medically assisted death, the patient's death must be reasonably foreseeable, and I've got air quotes up on that. Um, a number of months back, I had the great privilege, uh, the BC Care Providers Association invited me to moderate a discussion, a difficult discussion about medical assistance in dying or MAID. And one of the panelists that I had the opportunity to talk with is joining me on the line. Patty Rodney, the Associate Professor at the UBC School of Nursing, is with us. Patty, thank you for taking some time for us today. Good afternoon, Jody. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Can you give our listener just an idea of where we are currently with regard to MAID in British Columbia and where we may be headed? Well, it's, it's a good question, um, and uh, I think that there's been a lot of careful thinking on the part of policymakers, the courts, and healthcare providers, and indeed citizens across the country about this. Um, one of the things to say is that there has been ongoing uh, work to look at the research that's involved in understanding why people request made, how best to support them, and so forth, and that. Uh, created a report that came out from the uh, federal government um, in December of 2018. It was a report that reviewed the evidence of what we know and don't know, including looking at other jurisdictions. And my background's not in law, but I understand that in the interim, since that report came out in 2018, there have been a number of court cases uh, and um, court reviews that have also looked at uh, whether people are uh, getting the kind of access uh, to MAID that they desire, what sort of safeguards are in place, and so forth. So that, I think the best way to put it is that as Canadians, we're still uh, seeing this as an important question and still somewhat in terms of what's being authorized or not is a bit of a moving target. Now, Patty, one of the things that I found so fascinating being on the panel with you was your perspective as um, a lifelong nurse. I mean, you yes. have sat in that seat next to somebody struggling at end of life. Yes. And, and trying to, because it's a very polarizing issue. It, it made, you can bring up the discussion and think that everybody would say, oh, to each their own. But no, there are so many pieces to this. Uh, where, where, where does government come into play on this topic? Right, right. Well, well thank you uh, for a really thoughtful question. 
Um, I think that one of the things about looking at MAID is it's also important to understand whether Canadians, the population, are getting the kind of access to good palliative care when they are actively dying. In other words, um, Canadians, any individuals, need the opportunity to have appropriate symptom management, grief counseling, support for their families, uh, whether they choose to uh, die what we might consider more of a natural death or whether they choose MAID. And that access to palliative care um, and other related healthcare services is a crucial part of it so that MAID doesn't become a default. Right, because there are people that might say, I can't afford to have my aging parent with Alzheimer's late stages in, in a facility that's $10,000 a month, so we'll opt for MAID. Yes, so the, I think the the concern is that this has to be an autonomous choice right. where people have other options, both the individual who wants to request MAID or who's considering it or facing death, and also their family then needs a significant level of support. We are with... Uh, um, uh, Patty Rodney, who's Associate Professor, UBC School of Nursing, and I specifically wanted to ask you, Patty, about these online consultations that begin today are very important because Canadians are going to be specifically asked questions about MAID. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on um, the prospect of changing the standard 10-day reflection period? Yes, well, that, that's something that I have to confess I don't have a lot of background in or haven't spent a great deal of time to, to be able to think about it because it has newly emerged. Um, and I think that one of the questions that, um, that I know the courts are looking at and that healthcare providers will look at is what is the experience of people when they are in that waiting period? What does it do to the, um, the certainty or the lack of certainty around their decision? their decision, what supports do they need, what support do their families need. And I think that my understanding of how MAID has evolved is it's a very deep respect, reflecting a very deep respect for the autonomy of individuals, their right to choose, um, making sure that they're informed and that they're well supported. And so uh, I think that if the interval changes, it's also going to be um, up to us as healthcare providers, researchers, to make sure that those changes are also evaluated from a research standpoint. Patty, I really do appreciate your perspective today. Thank you so much for tackling this difficult subject with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Best wishes. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah. Are we paying too much property tax? Not enough? What's the deal here? We want to get to the bottom of a debate. You've probably heard on these very airwaves the conversation, uh, one side or the other, some say our property taxes are remarkably low and that we should be paying more for the privilege of living here. Others are like, uh, you may have heard George Affleck on this very station calling it a BS cup of coffee, that we're getting cup of coffee to death by uh, City Hall. Everything's, oh, it's just one more cup of coffee until you have 50 cup of coffees a day and cups of coffee a day and you can't afford them. In an affordability crisis in a housing market such as Metro Vancouver's, it is a big, broad question. And I got to tell you, I my head's spinning. Two men I respect greatly are joining me now who have... I'm going to say polarizing views on property taxes. One is Tom Davidoff, economics professor at UBC Sauter School of Business. Tom, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm always glad to talk with you, as I am with Paul Sullivan, managing partner at Burgess, Colley & Sullivan. Paul, thank you for taking some time out. 
It's a pleasure. Thank you. So I'm going to let you guys actually have a back and forth conversation to try and explain to our listener what impact an increase of 7% on our property taxes, the highest increase in a decade, that's the headline, in specifically in Vancouver's $1.6 billion budget. Um, some say it is too much in this affordability crisis and debilitating for the homeowner. Others say it is a must-do and will help our housing economy in some way, shape, or form. So we need those two pieces explained to us. And you know what? We'll come to you first, Tom, if you will. Give us your perspective on property taxes uh, in Vancouver. Sure. So let me separate three separate issues. Uh, the first is how much money should the government be spending uh, at the city or the provincial level? And that's not something I really have a very strong opinion about. Obviously, there's great stuff that could be done with money, uh, dealing with homelessness and uh, you know major drug problems uh, would be high on the list at the provincial level. You know, it certainly seems clear schools would benefit from more funding. But on the other hand, If you spend more money, uh, you have to take that money from households and making people pay money to the government is a drag, no doubt about it. So, you know, I I can see arguments on both sides. I will say that obviously the city can't continue to spend an extra seven to 10 percent per year forever uh, because that would just be too much. Growth is is really what matters and you've got to have manageable growth rates. So that's how much money we spend. Then the question is, do we pay too much in property taxes? And, you know, you can compare us to other jurisdictions in Canada, elsewhere in North America. And, you know, if you look at the property rate on a typical home, how many dollars they pay, forget percentage, we're very low in percent, but we have expensive homes. And when you multiply the two, we're pretty low uh, in terms of paying actually in dollars relative to other Canadian cities. But so can I can interrupt you there just for one quick yeah, second sure. and go instead of other Canadian cities, go Vancouver and right next door in Burnaby, mm-hmm. where the houses are basically worth about the same, where the property taxes did not increase 7% this year. Well, exactly right. So that gets to the question of how much money the, the city ought to be spending, right? And right. that that's just just a separate question. Gotcha. But I want what what I, what I think where I may differ or not. I'm not sure with Paul is conditional on how much money we spend in the city. How much should be residential property tax? How much should be commercial property tax? Right now, the rate of taxation is much higher on commercial, and I think the two rates should be closer than they are to each other. I think it's something like four to one commercial to residential. Uh, And at the provincial level, you have even more tools, right? Because there's high income tax, there's sales taxes. uh, And should we pay higher property taxes to, to fund lower rates of tax on income and sales? And the economics of that, I think, are a home run here in Vancouver, where it's so hard to build new homes uh, that a tax on property just takes money from taxpayers. Well, all taxes take money from taxpayers, uh, but an income or a sales tax is going to do more harm to the economy uh, in a place where it's so hard to build homes. Okay, let's let Paul get in here, because, Paul, one of the things that, that, for me, is somebody who's like a maxed-out homeowner. I got in barely by the skin of my teeth. My property taxes are a lot 
they're a burden for me. I can't defer them. And the fact that they're going to go up again is difficult for me. And I know some people are like, first world problems, you have a house. I get that. I get that. But I might not have a house if my taxes continue to go up. So that's what pops into my head as I'm listening to Tom's learned opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, we, we, we're lucky that we, we were able to afford to buy a home, but we have big mortgages. We, we we're, we're worked, you know, long hours, and, and now we need to produce more money to cover property taxes. And you know, the problem we're also experiencing right now is the the upper end home values, the high end home so that we're paying so much in property taxes uh, in municipal, anyways, uh, is coming way down thirty forty percent. And low-end properties are, are reasonably stable. So homeowners don't appreciate it yet, but there's a big shift going on in the tax burden. And the low-end properties are going to be paying a lot more taxes than they had in the past. So that's one issue. Um, to Tom's point on, on business versus commercial, I think we do see, uh, we, we are on common ground on that. Uh, 45% of the property taxes are paid by 7% of the properties. It's totally sustainable. We have a broken tax system with regard to small business. And um, yeah, I mean, on a comparative basis, we have highest values. We have the lowest tax rates, but we have the shifting going on that, that is, it's very damaging. And, and I agree with Tom as well. We cannot sustain 7 10% tax increases. Is that what you're saying, Tom, that we can't sustain the 7 to 10% increases? You're talking year over year, but a one-off like the city hall or sorry, excuse me, the city of Vancouver has passed. It seemed a little rushed and we were all supposed to feel really good that it came down from an even higher number. Um, you can understand why it's needed now. Is that where you're coming from? We have a new council that may have different priorities. I think the homelessness and uh, drug issues have become explosively uh, problematic. I mean, you yeah. know, got, we've got this awful problem uh, with a park that's a homeless camp, and you want to be humane. And I think, you know, you don't, you don't want to be callous. Uh, but, you know, are all our public spaces going to become uh, homeless shelters? Surely there's a better way. Uh, but I'm guessing that better way involves spending quite a lot of money. So, you know, a one-time increase dramatically in the city budget, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. Matt. But what, what, I, where, what I'm saying is, you know, growth rates matter in the long run. So if you're growing at 7 10% a year, you know, 10% a year, you've doubled in seven years, quadrupled in 14 years. You just cannot have 7 to 10% growth uh, every year in right. a world with 2% inflation. But one time... You know, pros and cons. You and I have talked before, Tom, about property taxes, and you really did educate me on, as you were beginning to say, and I cut you off, I'm sorry about that, about, you know, when when we do compare ourselves to other jurisdictions across the country or elsewhere in the world, we pay remarkably low property taxes here in Vancouver, even though we feel like we are taxed to the max and living in, in such an affordability crisis with regard to housing. Yeah, as a fraction of value, we're extremely low because, right. as Paul mentioned, when you have, uh, you know, very high values and, mo- you know, largely property taxes fund uh, municipal uh, spending. And that doesn't vary that much from city to city. And as some people have pointed out, you know, we've got expensive snow today, uh, but by Canadian standards, we've got less uh, snow stuff to spend on. Now, there's also property taxes that are spent at the provincial level. And more so than the municipal level, I think we ought to reform that. And it's hard to carve out Vancouver, but I think there would be a big payoff 
to making this a more business-friendly climate where people got to keep more of the money they earn. Uh, businesses would pay lower sales tax rates, but in exchange, uh, the province would take a bigger cut uh, on property taxes, get us more in line uh, w- with the mix of property to income tax rates elsewhere. And again, the reason is, you know, when it's hard to build homes, the impact of a property tax is primarily just grabbing money from taxpayers. Right. You know, people often say tax grab, tax grab. From a from an efficiency perspective, better to have a tax grab than a tax that people can run away from. Because when you tax a tax base that can shift away from the tax, you just get inefficiency. People make bad choices, uh, and the government struggles to raise revenue. Uh, Paul, do you want to chime in on anything here? Well, I mean, I got a couple points I would say. Um, I thought it was extremely unfortunate with the additional school tax, the impact that had on municipal budgets. You know, in the city of Vancouver alone, the province sucked an extra $110 million out of Vancouver residents through this new school tax with a very nominal rebate. Um, And and in my view, what that did is it really hampered uh, the city from being able to have uh, room in their in their in, to to shift taxes and, and 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 recover taxes because we're now sending so much more to the province versus the municipality and as we're hearing from Tom in my view I think the city is picking up the job or the responsibilities of, of what the province should be doing so I think that's terribly unfortunate and then to agree with Tom again uh, the 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 impact of taxation and the ability to deliver homes is is, is devastating you know the NDP mm-hmm. came out they they want to crush the demand for real estate in, in in British Columbia well they definitely did that but what they didn't anticipate is they destroyed the supply of housing and there's no housing being built right now very low levels and so taxation and if i can compare myself to 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 toronto where things are are much more stabilized uh is become probably uh, the biggest deterrent to building homes now so with 26 percent of the value of a new home in taxation and fees to government we've got to stop taxing real estate well that's an unbelievable number 26%. 26%. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so so uh, I, ju- I just want to clarify uh, on this point. I think Paul and I differ a little bit. Uh, as long as there's a queue at City Hall for permits, mm-hmm. I think th- a, a big problem we have in delivering housing is process. A huge problem we have is zoning and the need to rezone uh, rather, you know, rather than have stuff as of right. So that's a big obstacle to construction. We've had quite a lot of construction, obviously, uh, the last few years in response to very, very high prices. We're seeing a shift uh, away from that as the pre-sale market has gotten clobbered by a lot of factors, one of which is probably just, you know, a lot of condos to swallow for the market. Uh, but, but of course, lower condo prices is, is, is a positive. Uh, but the point being, if you're going to make it impossible for people to build through regulation, uh, then, you know, property taxes uh, don't don't really get in the way of construction. And Paul mentions fees, uh, which may or may not be a different story. I think he's talking about the community amenity contributions, DCLs, uh, etc. Guys, I've got to tell you that uh, there are people listening along on Twitter and they've got opinions. Go figure. This is a hot button issue when we start discussing it. Uh, off the radio, because there are polarizing sides of this. Uh, Tom, um, David Fine on Twitter is is saying that you're making stuff up, saying that our, our pro- property tax is low. What do you say to him saying when you compare like with like houses, we actually pay more than other Canadian cities? 
Yeah, David and I have exchanged uh, many a tweet, mm-hmm. and uh, his view is he's looked at some properties uh, in Toronto that he thinks are about as nice as some properties in Vancouver, and lo and behold, they pay uh, similar uh, tax rates. What I've done is sort of lined up properties uh, from the best to the worst, just in terms of property value, by metropolitan area, not by city. Uh, we can get back to that in a second. And if you look at the one in the middle, uh, or at least uh, with the mean uh, property value, a little different from median, but the same basic idea, uh, you pay less in Vancouver than on average across Canadian cities. And I believe that includes Toronto. Now, you have to include uh, property transfer tax, and, and I've done that, and you have to include the effect of the homeowner grant, and I've done that as well. Now, at the top of the market, uh, you know, five, six million dollars, you'll, you'll pay relatively higher here uh, than at the bottom of the market. Again, the homeowner grant goes away uh, and uh, you get the property transfer tax as a progressive tax. And now you pay the additional school tax. So you may be caught up at the very top of the market with Canadian norms. Mm. Uh, frankly, I don't see any harm uh, in taxing very high property value at a, at a significantly higher rate. You know, in the city of Vancouver, we should have very little single-family housing. That's the stuff that's subject to the additional school tax. And all of that, almost all of that, ought to be rezoned. You know, the historically significant stuff we can retain. Yes. Uh, but, but you know. You're right. We've talked about that before. Homes. That's another huge conversation that I would love to have with you, frankly, Tom. You're a series, yeah. as, as are you, Paul. I want to get you in here. We've only got like a minute and a half left, but I want you to get a word in on, uh, on sort of that, that piece of the like-to-like. What are, we, what are your opinions on that? Well, well I, I think Tom's right. At the lower end of the market, that Vancouver isn't overly taxed. But uh, I completely disagree with the comments around the additional school tax and the high end of the market. These are the families that have lived here for generations. And to, to assume that they can defer their taxes is one thing. And then to think that they can sell those houses these days is, is another. Those, there is no market left for the high-end homes in Vancouver. And to say that we shouldn't have any of these, these types of homes is, well, it's just not reality. We do have these types of homes. And so what we're doing is forcing people out of their homes because they can't afford to pay their tax bills anymore. And it's just not right. So I, I am completely opposed to the additional school tax, but on the lower-end properties, I, I would agree with Tom. Well, gentlemen, I very much appreciate you taking the time out to have our back and forth next time in studio with the three sure. of us, okay? Well, um, always a treat to meet Paul and chat with him, by the way. Thank you both for your time. Maybe we can yeah, all share, you, a cup, share a cup of City Hall coffee. <laughs> yeah, not 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 the BS. No, time. not the B. Hey, hey, watch it now. This is a family-friendly <laughs> program. Tom Davidoff and Paul Sullivan. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. Cheers.